We believe that alcoholism is a disease and that Alcoholics Anonymous is one solution to that disease. I'm here to bring you the voices of its members. Everyone that comes on the show, including myself, is an active member and has found recovery in the rooms of AA. As you listen, please take what works for you and leave the rest. I'm really grateful that you came out to do this in the rain. And I feel it's a little bit full circle because you were my sponsor when I was in the midst of relapsing. And I I was going to look back at the years, and I don't know if you remember the years, but you played it in, you influenced my sobriety greatly, and I appreciate it, and I'm grateful that you're here. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I don't remember exactly, but it was (laughs) before I had my son. So before 2015... Yeah. After 2013. So that was right there. In that core two year period, I'm assuming, because that's kind of. Yeah. And, and, you know, my sobriety is January 2014. So 2013, I was doing 90 and 90s. And I was, I mean, I really wanted it. And uh, that is where you, where you were. I remember, I do remember. (laughs) So, So, well, you can start with your name and your sobriety date. I should probably say my name. My name is Tara and I'm an alcoholic and we all know my sobriety date now. (laughs) Uh, Not my first one. Someday maybe we'll hear my story, but not yet. Uh, We're here to hear your story. So name, sobriety date, and then your experience, strength, and hope. What it was like, how you came into the rooms, and what it's like now in sobriety. And. (laughs) <laughs> and then I'll ask a couple questions at the end. Okay. Um, well, I'm Kate. I'm an alcoholic. And my new sobriety date is October 18th, 2019. I have been in and out for the past two years. So it's kind of, I ag- agree, full circle because I had had my first sobriety date was December 26, 2010. And then these past two years, I have decided I needed to do more research And it always comes back to the same thing. Nope, still an alcoholic, can't do this. Thankfully and gratefully, my relapses were never very dramatic or traumatizing to anyone other than my mental and emotional health. So, um, you know, I'm grateful to be here because it's very humbling. You know, and if you don't, if you don't relapse, it's really hard to relate to a relapser. You know, like, why can't they just get it? And now that I've walked this journey, I kind of get it you know um how it's it's harder once you relapse to come back because you're just like well to start over again um which has been my experience for the past two years so i'm hopeful and feeling as though this should hopefully be my last and only um sobriety date but you know who knows so um i always say i i grew up in the program you know all three of my parents were in recovery um, my mom, my dad, my stepdad, and I was that kid who my mom towed around to meetings. I was sitting in the corner playing and she'd stay to a meeting until I got too antsy. Then she'd leave because she, um, had me very early in sobriety. Um, so I, I knew about the program well before I needed the program. So I was, my parents raised me by the principles of AA. It was nothing new to us. You know, when my mom remarried to my stepdad, you know, they were also in recovery. And so all of us kids were very intimately aware of the serenity prayer and the steps and, you know, all this stuff. So um, I was fortunate enough to know where to go 
when the time came to need help. Um, so I wasn't a very, my drinking history isn't very long or in my opinion, very interesting, but I only drank for about five years. It's like in the book where, you know, they say women, we don't, you know, we go hard and fast, but we don't usually go for very long, which good or bad, depending on your perspective, I suppose. But I only drank really heavily and at my worst for about five years when I graduated from high school until graduation of college. So my college years, which isn't unusual. Most of the people in their 20s drink pretty hard and heavy regardless of whether or not you turn out to be an alcoholic. But my first drink was very alcoholic. I, I had just graduated high school. I went out with some friends. I discovered vodka and it tasted like water. And I drank lots of it very quickly, very fast. And then I just kind of remember being in a bathroom with my skirt over my head saying I loved everybody and puking my brains out. That was my drinking. I was a binger. I wasn't a daily. Um, I never knew how to pace myself. I'd always just, I was just a blackout drinker. So that's pretty much how my whole college career went. Lots of places I shouldn't have been. Lots of situations where I'm surprised I'm still alive. And I, I attribute that to that. There's an angel who was protecting everybody from me. Because it was just, I just, you know, didn't know. I mean, I can't say I didn't know. Towards the end, I'd say once I graduated from school, I knew I had a problem. But for a, a second, I was like, I'm a, I can be functional. Like, I, I'm, I'm holding a job. I've got a good job. Like, I'm I'm just partying is what you do. And even if I am, whatever. But that didn't last very long because my drinking always led to this very horrible place of depression and loneliness and me sobbing alone in my apartment by myself. And that was most of my, most of my drinking is I was an isolator. I would just lock myself in my apartment. I kept everybody very far from me. Boyfriends, best friends, nobody was ever allowed to be more than within 300 miles of me to really intimately know me because on some level I thought I was a piece of poo and if you truly knew me you wouldn't want you wouldn't like me and I was constantly changing who I was and that goes back even further because as a child I never felt like I fit in I always had a hard time connecting with people um I was always trying to numb out you know I numbed out with music when I really look at my life and as I've done this journey and you know I was always just trying to escape my body didn't want to be here it sucked um, hated, you know, hated my stepdad. I, I regretted, you know, just a lot of anger and resentment from a young, young age. And I blame no one for my alcoholism. You know, it was just the deepest form of fear that ruled my life. And so with, even though I was taught coping mechanisms, it just seemed to be that that was the progression. Um, and so fortunately when I was, it was 2010. So February 2010, I finally started to develop consequences where I got into a really bad car accident and I totaled my brand new car. Um, and that was when I was like, all right, maybe because I, I woke up in a blackout on the side of the road. I got out of I was I woke up from my blackout sitting on the curb. This guy with his kid, it was just this bizarre situation that was so scary. <clears throat> then I see my car. And I try to push it out of the road, but the undercarriage is completely totaled. It's not going anywhere. So then the cops show up. Again, the angel who protects me and everybody else from me intervened because the cops, they could have arrested me. They should have arrested me. But because of my profession, because I was so new and because I had no record, they just 
let me off the hook. But they said if they ever found me out here again, I was done. And I would have been done. So I was like, all right, I'm going to stop. Of course, that didn't last long. Um, I had a boyfriend who co-signed my bullshit. And so I continued to drink for a few more months. But then at that point, I was I wanted to stop. I was praying to stop. I was like, I couldn't stop. And so it took a couple months. And then in December of 2010, I, I said the, tw- the 26th was my sobriety date because I can't frankly remember when I truly sobered up. But I was working night shift, and my MO was to go get some wine and some pizza and drink myself to sleep. Um, and I had three boyfriends at the time. I called them my action figures um, because men were also something I toyed with and something I could control because, again, as a child, I felt very awkward, ugly, uncomfortable. And so to finally get attention from men and something I could control and manipulate felt really good to me. Um, and this one guy who was beneath me, in my opinion, he wasn't buying buying it anymore because I had broken up with him and then I was on the phone with him in a, in a blackout or like I, I was just so drunk trying to convince him to take me back and, and he just wasn't buying it. And I'm like, you're less than me. Like, don't you know who I am? And aren't you should be grateful that I'm even paying attention to you because you're a loser. You're like you smoke weed and you are drunk more than I am. And he wasn't buying it. And then. I blacked out, or actually right before I blacked out, I had this out-of-body experience where I saw myself on my couch, and just this voice in my head said, you are pathetic, and you're going to die alone if you keep this up. And then, then I blacked out. And I woke up, and like the, the obsession was lifted from me. What I had been praying for for months was finally taken from me, and I knew immediately where to go and what to do. So I started to go to meetings. And I broke up with all of one, but one of the guys. And when I told him, he was very supportive. And so I started going to meetings, you know, it was just, I was just, I just knew what to do. And I was very fortunate for that because frankly, I don't think at that time had I happened any other way would I have gotten sober. Um, I had had tried one time prior to that and, but I wasn't ready for it. And I still in my early twenties. So, um, so thankfully I stayed sober for eight years, um, worked the program, did everything you're supposed to do, and was very strong in the, in the program. I never, ever, ever thought I would relapse in my life. I always thought I had a pretty solid, you know, sobriety and was connected. And then I had my son, and I was also a working mom, and that changed my life. Thankfully, for the first two years, I connected with a group of women who we all happened to have kids at the same time, um, and we were all, all but a few of us were first-time moms, and we met every week once a week. And that was my meeting. And that's what kept me sane because I went from at least three meetings a week and service and being involved with people outside the meetings to virtually only once a week with these moms, barely getting to another meeting because I was possessed and riddled with so much mom guilt because I was just such an anxious mess after I had my son that being away from him just was so horrible. And he hated, I mean, he would scream for the first six months of life he would scream with his dad. I was the only person who would keep him calm. And it was just horrible. And so I just slowly faded away because I worked, you know, I had this little boy and I just felt awful being away from him because I was already away from him so much at work and just all these things. And so this core group of women for the first two years is what kept me sober. And so That started to dissipate because our lives were changing, our children were getting older, people were starting preschool, moms were going back to work or, you know, having a second kid. And it was just, it just kind of fell apart. And that's when I started to fall apart. I was, again, at that time, had no, no 
thought of relapsing, but I was really into my spiritual development at that time. And so I was reading a lot of like Eckhart Tolle and Gary Zukoff and Gabriel Bernstein. And there's these just these spiritual powerhouses and they would all address addiction on some level. And I really resonated with their definition. It was a very deep spiritual malady. But what I misunderstood was that didn't mean I could go drink again because I really started to, I don't know if that was my ego or if I misunderstood or what, but I really used that to justify trying drinking again. Well, maybe I'm not an alcoholic. Maybe if I just, maybe I've reached a certain level of healing with my body physically, with my gut because I had such bad health prior to sobriety and all these things I knew about the gut and healing and yada, yada, yada. And I'm, I'm spiritually deeper than I was before. So maybe that means I'm not an alcoholic, maybe. And eventually I did drink and I told my sponsor, I was very honest. Like I explained where I was at. I told my husband, it was no secret. And they were like, well, I mean, okay. My husband had never seen me drinking. My sponsor wasn't about to, you know, and you do what you got to do. I mean, I disagree, but <laughs> do what you need to do. And so I did. And I didn't like how it made me feel. My nervous system ached. And I don't know if it was the excess sugar or what, because I just didn't, I don't eat like that. I hadn't consumed something like that in a long time. My body did not like it. And so I kind of, I you know, I, I played with it. I, you know, but I just, I always came back to this place if I, I started to drink late at night, hide it from my husband, starting I, – I, the allergy crept in. The craving crept in of, like, I needed more and more because I want I, – I drank for the effect. Like, I drink coffee for the effect. Like, I don't drink that for funsies. I need to be awake. Alcohol, I, I couldn't just have one. I wanted to feel drunk. And so, luckily, there's this other part of my brain that said, you know, this is probably going to end up badly. We should stop. And so I did. And – I'm grateful for that, but it's also dangerous because, in a sense, at least the three relapses that I've had, I've just stopped. I've just said, you know, I don't like this. I'm going to stop. And so it's kind of a tricky thing to be in because if I'm at a weak spot, I can say, well, I can just stop again. Because, I, you know, I didn't really get into a lot of trouble in these relapses that I've had over the past two years. I just said, I don't like how I feel this is probably going to go poorly. I'm really demonstrating that I, once I start, I'm having a really hard time ceasing. And I, I just cannot be hungover with a toddler. It is awful. I work. I've got a kid. Being hungover, doesn't, especially now that I'm a little older in my 30s, I just don't bounce back like I did in my 20s, no matter what I do. And then this last time, <clears throat> I did pick up one of my yets. I drove with my son in the car. I wasn't complete. I was, you know, I'd only had a few, but it was, I wasn't, and I wasn't wasted, but it was enough to be like, this is, a, you know, you're willing to make this bad decision. And I let that go for a little while. And then one night, it was October of this year, I was drinking and I was trying to find more, trying to find more. And I just had this epiphany like and again it wasn't this crazy out-of-body spiritual experience I previously had it was just this voice you know and I call it the, my divine light within just speaking to me you know and just saying you know do you really want to do this if you really want to be the spiritual powerhouse of these women that you admire Brene ba Brown and Gabby and Bernstein and um, Glennon Doyle these women who I admire who are just these spiritual warriors 
all of them have the thread of spirit uh, have sobriety in their line, but none of them relapsed. <laughs> none of them went out. They got sober and got clarity and then are doing the work they're doing, but none, nowhere in their story is relapse or picking it back up. Where in my story is like, I get there and then I relapse. So, you know, I'm grateful this time that I've, I'm still staying sober and I'm remembering these things and I'm starting to go back to meetings and I'm starting to connect because my son's older. He's in preschool. You know, I'm really recognizing that. What does my child need and want? Does he want a crazy mom who's with him for five hours a day, but she's batty? Or does he want a mom who's sane, sober, and spiritually fit, but maybe she's not with him because she had to go to a meeting for an hour or two? And I feel my child would choose the second mom because she's probably a lot better to be with. As we all know, when we're crazy, we're not the nicest people. And so when we can unknowingly unload on our children and they absorb that. I mean, he absorbs it whenever, because I don't yell very much when I do and I make him cry. It's heartbreaking because I realize I've crossed a line. You know, I don't need to yell to get my point across. I, I need to take a breath, say a prayer, pause and ask for guidance. And then how do I handle the situation in a way that serves us both? Because to me, parenthood is a spiritual journey. This whole life is a spiritual journey. I'm a spiritual being having a human experience. And addiction has had to be one of those experiences, whatever I'm supposed to learn in this experience. I mean, I need to be sober to do that. So I'm grateful for, for, you know, I'm grateful for this experience. I don't regret my relapses because, again, they've taught me how to relate to people, to to understand and to have compassion in a way I didn't previously have. Um, And I've also learned in sobriety that I have to surround myself around people who get my crazy I need people bless you. I need people who understand working moms. I need people who understand being a type of profession that I'm in. I need to be around people who understand eating addiction and food problems because that's part of my story. So I need things I need to be around people who get my specific brand of crazy because if I talk to somebody who's never had children, who doesn't isn't a working mom, who didn't have problems with their eating, you know, eating as a as a you know, a young adult or, or whatever at one point, they're just not going to get my brain. Like they're in an alcohol, on a, on a alcoholic level. Yes. From a broad perspective, we can all help each other. But when it comes to the deeper parts, when you get past that scum level of your first or second, fourth step, when you've kind of just wiped away and you start to get to the deeper things that rather the core pain, that is the fear that, you know, kind of blossomed into that pain body, that, that, deepest form of fear you need people who get you and so i've i have i'm very picky about who i let into my circle because i need them to get me so when i call them spinning they're gonna know how to help me you know and and vice versa so you know i don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing but that's what i'm finding is most helpful that's my found my experience you know, because I know when when I was your sponsor, I didn't get being a, a working mom. You know, I didn't know how to how to help you other than say find other working moms. You know, because I I can't, I don't get it. Um, and I've when I tried to sponsor people who their primary issue is drug addiction, and I thought, okay, well, I mean, addiction's addiction's addiction, right? No, I don't get that. You know, I, you need to find somebody who who understands that. I can help you until you can. Um, so. 
So yeah, I think I'm rambling at this point, but I'm just really grateful for this journey. Um, I'm grateful for the clarity of mind. I'm grateful that it's happened the way it's happened um, and to just be of service in the best way possible. So yeah, thank you. Thank you. So what do you do today, Kate, for your sobriety? What is your weekly regimen? So on Mondays, I go to a meeting because that's when I can. My kid's in school and right before work. Um, And then really it's trying to, I try to talk to at least one sober woman a day through text or through calling and meditation and prayer. You know, meditation and prayer are at the center because I can't always get to a meeting. I can't always call somebody. And my experience has taught me that God is always right there. I just have to take the time to connect. And I've been in situations, again, where I can't get to a person or a meeting, and I need to have that spiritual connection. Because if you can't, you know, you got to have a solution. You have to have a way. I mean, that reminds me to a time, my very beginning in sobriety, where I was at a hotel, and hotels are triggers for me. Um, cause I used to lock myself in them and drink a lot of wine. And I've, when I've gone to hotels, with my husband, it's, it's the weirdest sensation, but it's just, it's very difficult for me. And I was in this hotel where they had wine that they put in your room and there was no cell service and I could, there was no meeting in sight. And I had brought my, I had prepared myself, which that's another thing is going into situations prepared. And like this holiday season, that's something I'm going to have to do because I'm going to be in situations where people are drinking potentially very heavily, and I need to go in prepared. So I had my big book. I had prayers lined out. I had um, I had phone numbers in case I had to find a pay phone to go to, and that saved me. And I had a bag of candy because, let's be real, sometimes we need to nurse those other isms that are a lot less toxic for our bodies. <laughs> um, so, yeah, prayer and med- daily prayer and meditation is the core of, and and taking care of myself in some way, whether it be exercise, um, rest, reading something, growing my spiritual experience. So I heard you mention the meeting situation when your son was young and not being able to get to a meeting. But I also heard you mention early on that you used to go to meetings when you were little. Mm-hmm. Are you opposed to bringing him with you to meetings? I used to when he was very little. When I could throw him in a carrier, nurse him to sleep, I'd go to women's meetings because I felt the I felt less judgment in case he got squirmy. But when he was three months old, I took him to a meeting, and this woman was just spewing her pain. And he locked into her and absorbed all of her energy, and I paid for that dearly. He's a very energetically sensitive child, and it just was not worth the price I paid to bring him because he would absorb people's stuff, and then he would cry for hours. So I'm not opposed, and I've actually I've considered bringing him now because now that he's older, I can put some headphones on him, give him a little thing, and entertain him so he doesn't have to hear it. And he's better at guarding himself energetically than he was as an infant. So now that he's older, I'm more willing to if I have to. Um, But I, you know, I'd like to keep the meetings for me because I don't feel like you can be fully present if your kid's there. I mean, if that's what you have to do, that's what my mom had to do. That's what some moms have to do. And if that's what you have to do, that's what you have to do. 
I tried to get involved with meetings to put on childcare, and we would for a minute, but it never seemed to last because it just never, that just doesn't seem to glom on very well for some reason. So... For some reason, people don't want to let other alcoholics watch their kids. I know. <laughs> Go figure. I know. So, I mean, well, it's it wasn't even that. It was just that getting people to commit. And it was it was just always – there was always some challenge. It just never seemed to work out quite right. But, um, yeah, I mean, now that he's older, I'm more willing to take him because I can kind of keep him entertained. That weird period between three months and now – was just, you know, and and honestly, I have no excuse. I could have asked my husband. He was available and willing. It wasn't like I I really had every excuse I had was bullshittable. Like you could you could really if I really needed it, like I I there was no excuse. I just I suffered from a severe case of mommy guilt. I felt like I'm away from you enough already. You you and I he and I are very attached to each other. It's it's very challenge it was very challenging. If if I really wanted a meeting, I could have gone. It's not the problem. It was me. So now that I've had these experiences and I see where it leads me, I have to prioritize my sobriety. And I've known that from the beginning. It's not like that's a surprise to me. Like, an aha, oh, my, I need to put my sobriety first. Like, that was told to me over and over and over. Um, but, you know, that's just me getting in the way of me and letting my fear and my my pain. I mean, I don't know who – I don't know where that guilt came from. I don't know if it was from – you know, my mother's experience or what that was, but it's just mommy guilt just ruled me for the past couple of years. And I'm now finally being able to just let it go and say, I need to do what's best for me. So if there's any mom out there suffering from a severe case of mommy guilt, especially if you're a working mom, because I feel like, and this is not a, a knock against any of my, my mom friends who stay at home because I they have their own set of challenges. We all have mother guilt. Oh, absolutely. Like, if you're a mommy, you got to just, I had a, yeah, <laughs> brace yourself. The mommy guilt. Yeah, but it's like they would run to a meeting because that was their break, yes. and so their husband home, peace out, going to a meeting. Like so, they they you know, if their husbands were available, to, they could. Me, it was like, man, I've already been gone for you for eight hours, and I'm because I, I work PMs. I'm I'm I don't get to go. To, I don't get to do bedtime, and if I go to a meeting at night, I'm missing bedtime again, and like trying to find the perfect time that worked with me and dinner time and bedtime and then oh my husband's gonna get because my husband's the one who watches our son he gave up his career for our to watch our son like he's created a new career but i don't want to ask him again like and one of my sponsors like he's not a babysitter it's his father and i said i get it but he's already watched him four days a week for eight hours to ask him to ask watch him one more time i just in my mind i thought it was just a burden but even though he and i talk about it he said it wasn't but I think this time when I had told him what I had done with our son in the car driving, he's a little bit more understanding because he's given up drinking. He won't because he said, well, what do you need? Because I, I was finally honest with him and told him because he didn't know what I was doing. I was like, wow, you're really like you're not paying attention because <laughs> um, I'm fairly certain I was pretty obvious I was drunk. But this time I was very honest with him. And I just said, hey, like I'm struggling and this and this is just not working. And so he's like, OK, what do we need? What do you need from me? You know, I said, I just, I need to be honest with you. I need your support. He said, okay, I'll quit drinking too. And I was like, because he has no problem. My husband's the man who can just put anything down and walk away with just, okay, I'm over it. So I think that is the difference here is the honesty that I, I opened up to him because I have a hard time doing that. I, I, I try to be strong. I try to put up a front. Everyone thinks I'm one way, but, but I'm, I'm not. And trying, so trying to keep that authenticity of letting my inside match my outside. 
So that is what's different this time. And him knowing that I drove in the car with our son when I was a little drunk and that I was hiding it from him and that I was having a hard time stopping. And it just it's just different this time. And I'm, again, grateful because that's the one thing that's kept that saved my butt is being honest. You know, just being honest. And when you start lying to yourself, lying to people, that's where we get tricky. Like even small ones, they add up and they just start to eat at your soul. And so if you find yourself, you know, giving yourself little white lies, little excuses, like just tell on yourself, you know, and that's the point of a sponsor, you know, because if you don't want to tell your sponsor what's going on, then there's a problem. So... I love everything you're saying. <laughs> it resonates. It's hard for me at work to be completely honest. I work mm-hmm. in corporate America. But you had made this statement earlier. If anyone truly knew me, they wouldn't like me. Like, if you truly knew me, you would not like me. Mm-hmm. And then you kind of bring it back with if you match your outside with your inside. For me, all of that equals a complete freedom of self. Mm-hmm. And if you can be completely yourself, which requires complete honesty, then you're allowed to love yourself and you're allowed to let other people see the real you. Mm -hmm. The challenge is I was always changing myself and manipulating the situation to the person so that person would like me and then that I got to be this way for this person that way. But there's this freedom Mm -hmm. in, 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 in the pure honesty of being okay with yourself all the time. And I find myself... Even this going on here, you know, every opportunity I have in every conversation, I can lie. Mm -hmm. In small little ways, I can manipulate the truth because that's my default. I did it for so many years and I have to be really careful to be always honest. And if we're honest with ourselves, then we can properly love ourselves. If we can't love ourselves, we end up hating ourselves, and thus the drinking behavior, whether or not there's drink or not, ensues. Mm-hmm. Um, so complete honesty. Absolutely. And what makes me think, uh, you know, and this is what I've learned recently is, you know, what you're describing is called fitting in. You're trying to fit in so this person will like you because you think there's, you're inadequate It's not, or it's not safe to be your true self. But to be for acceptance, meaning I accept myself, I aim to be accepted by others, meaning I, who I show up as in a situation is enough. And when I find myself trying to fit in, meaning I'm trying to squeeze myself into something that I'm not, that's a barometer to me of, oh, okay, I don't feel safe. Because we only do these things because we don't feel safe. I don't feel safe to speak my truth because I'm afraid of judgment, you know, or criticism or lack of acceptance by this person. Because for some reason, I think that will make me feel better if they like me or whatever and I like you guilty of doing that my whole life trying to fit into something I didn't fit into and sobriety allows me to put my representative down my false self down and just be who I am because it's the one place I find that it doesn't matter who I show up as I'm truly and honestly accepted and when I surround myself with people who are in recovery who are like-minded who will accept me flaws and all you know then I can speak I can feel safe to speak my truth in an authentic way. But then also this goes back to, I can't remember the exact phrase, but this spiritual guy that I follow, Matt Kahn, said it eloquently, is that, you know, who you are 
at home when no one's looking is also equally as important to who you put out in the world. Because if you're doing things behind closed doors that you wouldn't want to show people, that's also almost like a self of like sign of self-violation. You know, being, God, I wish I remember what he had called it, but it was just so eloquently, it just made so much sense to me that I don't want to fit in anywhere. I just want to be who I am. And if I'm finding myself doing that, it's because I don't feel safe. And I need to evaluate, why don't I feel safe? That's my MO when I start to judge people. Or I find myself having those thoughts that don't match my values. Mm-hmm. I, my MO is, or my mantra rather, is you are safe. You are safe. You are loved. You are safe. Mm-hmm. You are safe. Because if I feel safe, I don't, I don't care that you're doing whatever you're doing. Mm-hmm. I feel safe. You're not threatening me any longer with your behavior. So I no longer judge it. Yeah. I am safe. I have a question for you. Yes. So I remember somewhere, probably before you're relapsing, you contacted me, we ran into each other, something about Jesus and a cross or a crucifix and a ghost. Does Mm. this sound familiar? (laughs) Okay. I don't know if this will make the cut for your chair, but I'm super curious to hear what went down (laughs) with this. Well, actually, I still have that crucifixion. Hanging, it's not hanging over the door anymore. Um, so he is my ban. I, I'm an I know I'm an omniist. I believe there's truth in all religion, mm-hmm. but oh, I've, I've known Jesus that. tracked me down. Oh no, he's a great spiritual leader. <laughs> he's a great spiritual teacher. Um, Talk about honesty, yeah, and forgiveness, mm-hmm. and absolutely lack of judgment. You yeah, know. no, and I, I would I truly believe because I'm not religious and I don't ascribe to any one group, and I, I just because they've scarred me all um, to some degree. And, you know, that's fine. But um, forced rules are very hard. I don't do well when you tell me what to do. <laughs> don't tell me what to believe. Right. <laughs> um, but I've come to learn that Jesus, like Buddha and Gandhi and all those great, they're spiritual teachers. And Jesus really just got it, in my opinion. Sermon on the Mount is my favorite book, hands down. Um, but what was going on is that, you know, I'm very energetically sensitive. I pick up things. um, and working in the previous environment I worked in, I would bring a lot of stuff home. Um, and apparently where I lived was, you know, this area for some reason is very, very dense in um, ghosts and past life. I, mean, I believe in divinity and nothing is, everything is synchronous. Um, but we were just, again, my son is very energetically sensitive. And when he was born, I was having so much stuff happen to me that was just, and I always view it as a threat. I never really trust it. I'm very scared of it. I want nothing to do with it. I'm like, here, I know people. Go go to them. I don't want to deal with you. And so we were just having a lot go on in our house that I was just kind of over it. And that's kind of how I approached it. I'm like, I don't want to deal with you. I'm over. I just go away. Let me live my life. Let me clear this space so I, I don't know what to do because I'm not there yet. Like, I'm just learning to not be so fearful. I'm learning how to set boundaries and on a physical level and a spiritual level um, because both physical humans and spirituals can violate those if you don't set boundaries. Um, But anyway, so yeah, we, (laughs) I was looking for anything that would work. And so it was suggested that I get a crucifix of Jesus over our door and then have our house cleansed. And so I reached out to you to ask you, where do I buy one of those things? Because I have no idea because that's just beyond me. Um, I'm like, can you Amazon that? (laughs) 
So I found it at a store locally, and we got our house blessed. And unfortunately, that didn't do the trick. Um, but having someone come over and clear our house and set grids and whatever, and then me just, you know, making some different shifts in my mentality and changing jobs also helped that as well. And um, I brought him along on our move. And um, actually, we used um, – it's one of the saints that's supposed to help you move or something. I used him per request of, or suggestion, like as a Catholic belief. Um, if you plant this guy upside down in the back of your, in the front of your house, he helps you sell your house. And literally I bought him and then my house got an offer. So he came along with us. So I'm not opposed to any of that. I find it all fascinating and learning any of that stuff. But yeah, that's what that was about. <laughs> interesting to me that you know like we you know it's an allergy it's you know we have this we're born with this mental defect but the solution is spiritual like no other illness requires like a, a spiritual solution to i mean you can say people use prayer to cure diseases but for aa at its source spirituality is what saves us you know and it helps us to stay sober because no pill no drug no surgery no nothing actually cures this you know, people will use medication to help them get sober, but what helps you stay sober is service and spirituality. You know, that's the bottom line of it. That is really well said, which was surprising to me when you were doing all this spiritual research. It's almost ironic yes. because it's so easy. Normally, when someone falls out of the program, it's for you, it was lack of meetings and connection yeah. to the program. And service. <laughs> and service. And you know, right, right. If you can't keep it, if you, you mm-hmm. don't give it away, these cliches that they're right you know you you cannot keep it if you don't give it away and because honestly i mean and this is my i think too much this is a program of action not a program of thinking someone reminded that to reminded us of that in a meeting that i went to recently and that this is a program of action you know it's you do a lot of deep reflection and to purge the pain and whatnot and that is important that is very important that's why spirituality is a big part of it but service is as well and you know, it's a balancing act because, you know, people who hide in the rooms of just they just all they do is drown themselves in the program. You know, I don't think that's helpful either. But if you don't do every all three steps, I mean, it's a triangle for a reason. You take off one, it falls apart. And, you know, and from my perspective, it was I wasn't in service. I wasn't working a program. You know, it can't work if you don't work it like it. you, you know, you I, you know, it's like anything, like when you start to surround yourself and expose yourself to something on a constant basis, it tends to leak into your life. But if you stop exposing yourself to it, you can easily forget. And, you know, it's like exercise. Like if you don't stop exercising, the benefits go away. You know, so if you stop working a program, then it goes away. And there's, you know, there's so many things that have overcome the barrier of access. I mean, I've found Online meetings, like Skype video chat meetings. Like keepcomingback.net? Like, I love this. When you sent me this, I spammed it to all my girlfriends, all my mom friends, all my friends who I know have trouble. I was like, you need to listen to this. This is this is amazing. And, like, I listen to it, at, like, on my way to work when I have, you know, because if I, I, right now, and which is probably not the best thing, but I only go to one meeting a week right now because I just can't seem to find one that works. But and now that my son's going to go to school more, I'm hoping that will change. But it it helps. It makes you know. I never thought. I always, again, this is my ignorance speaking. But like the grapevine is you know because we used to have speaker meetings on disc. You know, I'm sure people say I can remember we had speaker meetings on tapes. tapes. Well, we call them speaker tapes. Yeah, so. it's not a tape. Um, but you know, I didn't think I was like that. Just not the same. But you know, if you can't get to a meeting, 
and this is what you can do, then that is okay. You know, but you also can't, you got to do something. You have to be of service. And so, and if you can't be of service to a meeting, be of service somewhere else. You know, it's the giving of the self, getting out of the self, helping somebody else that is what saves you. Because if you're locked away in your brain, never connecting with others and getting out of yourself, then you're, it's a, it's a disaster. I'm so happy that you came out and got vulnerable and honest. And just a couple months into sobriety, um, we're going to track you down and maybe have you come back in a year and see how the last year's gone for you. Um, and hotels are tricky for me, too. And holidays can be tricky for a lot of people. So if you need a meeting any time of day, you call me and I will <laughs> get me. I, I will even come up to your part of town <laughs> and I will go to a meeting. <laughs> All right, Kate, thank you so much for coming and sharing your story. Thank you. For more information, read the first 164 pages of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous or visit keepcomingback.net.